0: Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host,
1: Pete Mikaitis.
0: Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 672 with Heather Hansen. Heather Hansen is an experienced trial attorney who has a wealth of wisdom when it comes to how to advocate for yourself effectively. So you'll learn one, how to advocate like the pros, two, how to turn your inner critic into your biggest ally, and three, how one question can get people to agree with you all the more. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP672. Now here's Heather's story. Heather Hansen gives her clients the tools to advocate for themselves, their ideas, and those around them. She's been a trial attorney for over 20 years and was consistently named one of the top 50 female attorneys in Pennsylvania. Heather uses her psychology degree and her years in the courtroom to help her clients ask for what they want and get it. She's also an anchor at the Law and Crime Network and has appeared on NBC, Fox News Channel, CNN, MSNBC, CBS, and Sirius Radio. She's helped thousands of folks in her keynotes in Kuwait, Ireland, Mexico, and across the U.S. become their own best advocates. Heather is the best-selling author of The Elegant Warrior, How to Win Life's Trials Without Losing Yourself, which has won much acclaim. And her latest book, Advocate to Win, 10 Tools to Ask for What You Want and Get It, came out just recently. Big thanks to Heather for sharing her wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. And now here's Heather. Heather, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast.
1: I am so excited to be here, Pete. I've been looking forward to this for a long time.
0: Oh boy, me too, me too. Well, I'm sure you have a lot of stories in your career in the courtroom. Could you maybe share with us one of your most exciting tales of advocacy?
1: Oh my goodness. There's so many to share, but I will tell you one that seems to resonate with a lot of my audiences. And it was a recent trial before COVID, of course, since COVID, very few cases have been tried. But this was a case where I represented a podiatrist. And one of the dirty little secrets about trial law that you might not know, unless maybe you've served on a jury, is that jury members fall asleep. (laughs) and it happens worse after lunch it happens worse when we turn off the lights if we're playing a video for them of an expert or something And it happens in almost every case. Uh And in this particular case, I represented a podiatrist and the, I always represent doctors when their patients sue them. The patient was alleged that he had a skin cancer on his toe that had gone undiagnosed and he sued two primary care doctors and two podiatrists. And so I represented a podiatrist. The patient himself was a middle-aged man. The attorney for that patient was a middle-aged man. The first podiatrist was a middle-aged man. His attorney was a middle-aged man. The primary care doctor, middle-aged man, his attorney, middle-aged man, second primary care doctor, same deal, Mm -hmm. my doctor, middle-aged man, and then there was me. And when the trial started, we almost immediately saw that this jury was a sleepy jury. And to give them their due, it was very difficult medicine, talking about the doubling time of cancer cells. And so they were falling asleep even more than usual. But I noticed, Pete, pretty early on that every time I got up to speak, they would wake up, even if it was just for a minute. And can you I bet you can, you of all people, guess why they were waking up?
0: Well, I mean, you're you're a beautiful woman. Uh (laughs) Well, thank you. That's very
1: complimentary. But it was really my voice. My voice sounded different than all the other voices that they were seeing.
0: Okay. Contrast principle.
1: That's right. And like the surprise of it, you know, they're like, oh, boring, boring, same, same, same. Oh, look at that. That's something different. And so I decided to maximize on that. So usually when I ask my questions, I start with going through resume and going through the foundation. And then I hit with the big punching question towards the end of my questioning. And you have to sort of lay a foundation, but I worked really hard to get to the good stuff first, because I wanted to take advantage of the fact that the jury, was awake. And at the end of the trial, the jury found everybody, including the patient, was negligent except for my doctor. And I don't think that's because of the fact that I'm a woman and my voice sounded different, but it couldn't have hurt. Mm-hmm. And the lesson that I learned from that is to use your differences. You know, so many people say, "Is it hard to be a woman as a trial attorney?" Because less than five percent of trial attorneys are women, and I think it's an advantage if you choose to see it that way. Mm-hmm. And no matter what your differences are, I think that you can choose to creatively use them as advantages and use them to win.
0: Oh, beautiful! Well, that is a nice illustration and a clear point and a happy, uh, successful outcome uh, there. So, well, cool stuff. Well, well, maybe. Let's start with some exciting stuff. What would you say is perhaps one of the most surprising or counterintuitive discoveries you've made about persuasion, advocacy, negotiation over your career?
1: So one of the things that people are always surprised at is that we win our cases not by arguing. You know, when I tell people I'm a trial attorney, almost always someone will say, oh, I should have been a trial attorney. I'm really good at arguing. And we don't win by arguing. The way that our trials are set up, Pete, the openings are supposed to be opening statements. They're meant to be an outline and Mm -hmm. you're not really allowed to argue. The closing is a closing argument, and that's a small fraction of the case the majority of the case, all I do all day, every day is ask questions. Mm -hmm. And so the surprising thing is that asking questions is how you win. Asking questions is magic. And so that's a lesson that I have taken from trials and carried on into my life outside the courtroom. Mm -hmm.
0: All right. Well, so asking questions is huge. And what are the kinds of questions we should be asking? Any special uh, top faves or scripts or principles?
1: So I have one favorite question that has become a huge calling card for me in my keynotes and so forth. And it's not even my question. It's a question that was asked by a woman named Judge Rosemary Aquilina. Judge Aquilina was the judge in the Larry Nasser hearing. Larry Nasser was the gymnast doctor accused of molesting all of those women in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And I, one of my hats that I wear is I'm an anchor at the Law and Crime Network. And I happen to be working the week of that hearing. And we only intended to cover it for a day because only a few women were planning to come forward and most of them didn't want to use their names or their faces, which makes it not such great TV. By the end of that hearing, over 100 women had come forward to tell their stories and most of them used their names in their faces. And I attributed that, having sat there and listened and watched, to Judge Aquilina and specifically to one particular question that she asked each woman as they came forward. Because, Pete, she didn't say, Why are you here? Uh She didn't say, What happened to you? What do you have to say? She said, Tell me what you want me to know. There you go. And that question allowed the women to tell their story the way they wanted to tell it. Some of them talked about the way it impacted their relationships with their husbands. Some told the way it impacted them physically. Some told the way it impacted them in their confidence. They told her what they wanted her to know and that changed everything. And now I believe that question with your clients, with your customers with your bosses, with your the people who report to you, and with your friends and your family and your children. That question can be magic. So that's probably my favorite question.
0: Mm, yes, it is. It is beautifully broad, but also points us in a direction. It's a lot better than, so what's up? <laughs> 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 Which is also wide open, like that yes. can go in any number of directions yes. that they could choose for their own adventure with. Yeah. But uh, tell me what you want me to know is really in that sweet spot. So, so thank you for that. And well, so that's just one of, of many tips you're putting forward in your book, Advocate to Win 10 Tools to Ask for What You Want and Get It. What's kind of the main idea or thesis behind the book here?
1: Advocate to Win shares the 10 tools that I used in the courtroom that every one of your listeners can use to ask for what they want and get it. So the 10 tools are elegance. The root of the word elegance is to choose. And so elegance to me is choice. And when you're advocating, you have to choose who you want to be. How dirty do you want to get? How difficult do you want to be? So the first is elegance. The second is words. The choice of words makes such a difference. Words that speak to your jury of clients or customers or bosses, friends or family. It's really important to choose your words carefully. The next is perspective, making sure that you understand your jury's perspective because you can't change your perspective until you understand it. The next is questions. We just talked a little bit about questions. The next is credibility, because if you don't believe me, I can't win. The next is evidence, which is the facts that we use to build our case. The next is reception. That's reading body language, tone of voice, and facial expressions. Number eight is presentation. That's using your body language, tone of voice, and facial expressions. Number nine is negotiation. And number 10 is argument.
0: All right. Well, Heather, I love the the speed you're cooking with. So, I might just <laughs> I might just go for the gold and say, "Can you give us a top do and a top don't inside all 10 of these tools?"
1: So, one of the things that I should sort of lay as a foundation is I mentioned that every listener has their jury. So, their jury is going to be their clients, their customers, anyone they want to persuade or influence. It could be your boss, it could be your direct report. Right now, your listeners are the jury that we want to influence and persuade. But every one of those tools in my book, I recommend that you use it first with your inner jury. Uh And the inner jury is the part of you that chooses. Now, a lot of my coaching clients think the inner jury is the part of them that is critical. And that's not really true. In the courtroom, the jury listens and they choose. Mm -hmm. And that's what your inner jury does. And so you probably have an inner voice that says, you're not smart enough, you're not good enough, you shouldn't do that, that's not safe, stay in the cave, don't go out, don't take that chance. And you want to also give your inner jury the choice of a voice that says, go for it, you're good enough, you can do it, why not try? And then the inner jury gets to choose. So for each of those tools, I go through and apply it first to the inner jury, and then to the outer jury. Mm-hmm. So, elegance, the root of the word elegance is to choose. And I believe you choose your elegance. And I think it's really important to recognize before you start advocating what you're advocating for and who you want to be when you're advocating. Those are choices. In the book, I have a three step process to make good choices, to make sure that you're choosing. And the first is to know that you're choosing. You know, so often, we fly off the handle, or we react out of anger, or we hit the snooze button in the morning rather than getting out of bed. And those are all choices that we make. And when you know that you're choosing, you're more likely to make the best choices. And then the next step is knowing who is choosing. Because too often it's our moms, our partners, or habit, or our egos. And you really want the best part of you, your inner jury to be making that choice. And then the last thing is to know your reasons. I encourage my clients to list out their reasons on each side. And usually if you sit down and look at a list of reasons for a particular choice, the choice becomes much more clear. Mm -hmm. So that sort of summarizes what we talk about in the elegance chapter of the book. It's really about making choices and making choices that are going to serve you well. Because, you know, in the courtroom, you make so many choices when you're trying a case and you always think like, maybe I shouldn't have crossed that person. Maybe I should have asked this question. And in life too, you always think maybe I should have stayed in that relationship. Maybe I should have left that job. You're never going to know whether a choice was right. And I'm putting air quotes here, right or wrong. Mm -hmm. But if you like your reasons, then you can at least have confidence in that.
0: Yeah. Well said. And as opposed to, oh, you just never knew because you, yes. you didn't do the work in advance to to think it through and to take the time.
1: That's right. The words chapter, you know, words are the tools of an advocate and the words that we use matter. You know, Maya Angelou believed that words were had energy. And if someone was using words like racist words, negative words in her house, she would make them leave her house because she didn't want those words to be in her home. Mm-hmm. And I think that words have energy as well. And so- You want to be careful with the words you use with yourself, with your inner jury, and the words you choose with your outer jury. So with your inner jury, your self-talk, you just want to be careful of those negative things that you tell yourself, that you're not good enough, that you're not smart enough, or worse, that you're ugly, dumb, old, too old, you know, those types of things. You really want to be conscious of that. And then when it comes to the words that you use with your outer jury, there's an idea. I can't really find the research to back this up, but I have read That if I say one word that my jury in the courtroom doesn't understand, they don't even hear the next 10 words I say. Hmm. That makes sense to me, Pete, because if I get up and I say, this is a case about osteomyelitis, the jury. What the is is gonna... <laughs> 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 right. Or I told this lady, I shouldn't be on this jury. I don't know anything about <laughs> medicine. Then they start to get angry and it's gone. Mm. So you want to recognize that everyone has the curse of knowledge. Everyone knows something so well that they forget what it's like not to know it. Yeah. And with words, especially and like, if you're in a business with acronyms, you know, I work a lot with real estate people and they have so many acronyms and they know them so well that they forget what it's like not to know them, yeah. but their client, who is their jury might not know those acronyms. And so the more that you can be really conscious of the words that you're using and how they will best resonate with the jury, the more likely you are to win.
0: Mm-hmm. I love it. Keep it going.
1: All right. Okay. The next is perspective. So perspective is, it really is so important. Viktor Frankl wrote Man's Search for Meeting, which is one of my top books of all time. He was a psychotherapist who survived Auschwitz. And while he was in Auschwitz, he wrote this book. And a lot of the book is about how the only choice that he had in that dire circumstance was he could choose his attitude or his perspective. He could choose how he saw the world. And he actually talked about this bowl of quote unquote soup, which was really just brown, dirty water with a fish head floating in it and how he chose to see it as this delicious bowl of soup. And that's where your inner jury is choosing perspective. There's always another way to look at things. And as much as that doesn't always feel true, it's where your power lies. It's where your, your choice is where your power lies. And so choosing a different perspective when you're feeling down or negative or defeated is a really important thing. And then To change your outer jury's perspective is your ultimate goal. One of the quotes that I often use in my in my work is that when you communicate, you share perspectives, but when you advocate, you change them. Mm -hmm. And so the first step in that is really understanding, getting to know your jury's perspective, because you can't change someone's perspective until you know it. And then once you know it and understand it, then you can get to work asking the questions and using the evidence and all of the future things that will allow you to change it. And
0: so I'm curious when, with a jury, how does one elicit that? Because to my knowledge, you can't just sit down and have a chat. So where are you coming from? Where Where are you coming in on this so far?
1: It's such a great point. And I always say that because in life and in business, you can, right? You get to talk to your jury and ask questions, Mm -hmm. which is an advantage you have. We have to base it upon those few questions we get to ask during voir dire Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the trial, when we sit down with the jury and ask them questions. And also on, to be honest, some presumptions. I know for a fact that every single one of my jurors ever is a patient or has been a patient. Mm -hmm. Everyone in the courtroom has been a patient, including the doctor. And I know that that means that they are going to see the world through a patient's eyes.
0: Right. As opposed to a hospital executive or Or a doctor. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I've never had a doctor on my jury Mm -hmm. and that's a different perspective. So I can't talk to them as if they're a bunch of doctors and just show them all the studies that support my case. I have to talk to them about the relationship between the doctor and the patient and why the doctor did what he did using words they understand and maybe remembering, oh, yes, that juror told me that he was in like to do woodworking and that juror told me that she's a contractor and she builds buildings. Let's compare this surgery to putting up a house. Mm -hmm. and speak to their perspective in that respect as well.
0: Yeah. Cool. Okay. So then questions, we hit a favorite. Any others you want to mention?
1: Well, I just want to mention that you can use questions to challenge as well. I have a young associate who was struggling a little bit and I said to her, tell me how you would respond if you were the partner in that situation. And that question sort of made her realize that she wouldn't respond very well to the thing that she had done mm-hmm. instead of saying you did this thing and it was bad and you should recognize that it was bad asking the questions. What do you think you could have done better? How do you think this felt to that person? questions are just magic and you can use questions to challenge. They don't always have to be, you know, tell me what you want me to know is a very friendly I would think of it as a direct examination question to a friendly witness. But the cross examination questions are sometimes deadly, mm-hmm. and you can do them as well. You know, just really considering where you want to get to with the question and then just crafting a series of questions that gets you there.
0: Yeah, that's great. And so that goes a lot farther than saying, how do you imagine the partner would feel in that situation versus, well, you got to remember, you
1: know, partners,
0: they're concerned about their clients and their credibility. It's like, okay, yeah, I don't want to be lectured. I, I would rather make them do the work and think a little bit there.
1: Exactly. There's a great study. And, and my mentor is John O'Brien. And he used to always say that about juries, like don't shove it down their throat, make them feel like they've discovered something. And there's a great study that shows that if I make a piece of origami, I will price it at a higher price yeah. than if someone else made that. And so when you ask questions, the people are speaking the answers and by speaking it, they own it. And so now all of a sudden, they're agreeing with you where maybe they never would have.
0: Mm-hmm. I dig it. Let's talk about credibility.
1: Credibility is, I also have what I call the five C's of an advocate. One of those C's is credibility and it's a double, you know, doubles up because it's so important because if you don't believe me, I can't win. If the jury, they can think I'm smart. They can think I'm nice. They can think I'm cute. They can think I'm funny. But if they don't believe me, I will lose. Mm -hmm. Well, let me just start first with the inner jury because you have got to believe before you can make anyone else believe. Well, a lot of times people will say to me, what do you do if you know a doctor made a mistake? And my answer is I find a story that I can believe. Sometimes that means admitting that the doctor made a mistake, but then arguing the case on damages. You know, it's not worth what the other side wants to be paid. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes it's explaining exactly how the mistake was made. But I have got to believe in my story before I can make the jury believe it. And that means that when you're advocating for yourself and your ideas and your bank account, You have got to believe in those things before you can make anyone else do so. And then you want to make them believe. And the way that you make people believe is with you, it's two things. You want to believe in you, which means that you start to collect evidence, which we'll get to in a minute, but you start to want to start to collect all of the things that you have done in your life that support your ask. So it can be like I waitressed for years and years and years. And I always look back at waitressing and say, you know, I was good with people. I was good with numbers. I was quick on my feet. I could remember things. And that, for me, has allowed me to believe in my ability to do things affiliated with everything I just listed. Uh So building your credibility by really looking and it doesn't have to be in the same business. You know, if your listeners are looking to switch jobs or switch complete industries, what's transferable? I coach some women who have been out of the workforce to be moms, you know, to raise children and then going back into the workforce. And I can give a bunch of examples of the things that they've done as mothers that are evidence of their ability to do things in the workforce. And we talk about those to help them believe in themselves, build credibility with themselves. And then the other part of credibility with yourself is believing yourself. When you make yourself a promise, you have to keep it. And when you set an expectation, you have to meet it. Because if you don't, you lose your own credibility, and that's pretty deadly.
0: Say more, deadly how? Because I think many of us have said, okay, I'm going to wake up tomorrow, I'm going to go for a run, and then I don't. What is the consequence of that?
1: Yeah. Every time you do that, the next time you tell yourself you're going to do something, you believe it a little less. And if you don't believe it, then how are you going to persuade anyone else to believe it? I lost 100 pounds when I was 18 years old. And I always say, I'm so grateful that I had the weight to lose. Not for losing the weight, which of course I am for a million reasons, but that I had the weight to lose because at a relatively young age, I built so much credibility with myself. I know that if I make myself a promise, I will keep it. And if I set an expectation, I will meet it because I've done that and I've done it in a pretty big way. And it doesn't mean so. It's the same with your outer jury. Those two, you want them to believe in you, and and we can talk about how to do that. You want them to believe you. And it's the same thing, making promises, setting expectations. But the fastest way to build credibility with yourself and with others is when you can't keep a promise and you can't meet an expectation, you own it. Uh Like in the courtroom, if I say my expert disagrees with my doctor on this point, immediately the jury is like, wow, that lady just told us the truth, Uh even though it doesn't help her. And then when I tell them other things that do help me, they're more likely to believe them. Yeah. So, and it's fast and it's easy once you put down your ego. Beautiful. Okay. And how about evidence? So evidence is all of the things that you use to build that belief in you. And when it's yourself, I give my clients, when we start working together, an evidence journal. And I ask them at the end of every day to write down evidence of their skills, their talents, their capabilities, their resilience, their power, anything they can think of three things a day. And then you go back and look at that when you're feeling less than credible. So that's for the inner jury for the outer jury. You know, there's a famous maxim in advertising that says that in order to make someone remember something, you have to repeat it seven times. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's true. But in the courtroom, I feel like if I repeat something seven times, the jury is going to fall asleep, as we discussed, or hate me. Mm -hmm. So I've kind of expanded that. And I say that you need to say it seven times seven ways. Mm -hmm. So as you're collecting evidence to give to your boss or your superior or your investors or your clients or your customers, what ways can you present that evidence? Can you make a chart? Can you use pictures? Can you make a video? Can you bring in someone else as a testimonial? Can you tell a story? And trying to really come up with seven ways to share that evidence to make sure that you're hitting all of the different like inputs, all of the different senses that people might understand information through, but also that you're actually repeating it seven times.
0: Okay, cool. And then reception.
1: Reception is so important, and everyone wants to lead with presentation. Like a lot of times, I'll get calls to consults to start coaching with me, and they'll say, Well, I really want help on camera. I really want help with my body language. I really want help with my tone of voice. And we'll get there. I mean, that's the next tool. But listening, the best listener in the courtroom wins. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm in the courtroom so focused on how am I going to look, sound, and move my face the next time I ask a question, and I'm not listening to the answer. I'm missing out on important, vital, lovely evidence. Mm-hmm. And it's really important to listen to tone of voice. So you can read body language a little. I mean, body language is a lot of context and you don't have a lot of time with many people to build up that context to do it well. But tone of voice, there's a study out of Yale that tells us that tone of voice tells you more about a person's emotions than their body language and their facial expressions combined. hmm So if you really are present and listening, you can often tell if someone's faking a smile, if they're tired, if they're angry, if they're frustrated, and then you can use that information to advocate and it's super effective. So really listening and paying attention and receiving the other person is a key tool to advocating.
0: Any tips on how to train that skill or your ear to zero in on the, the emotion behind the tone?
1: I think that it's, it's in being present, right? So there's actually recent studies that show that when people are talking on the phone, they may be better at like turn taking if it's like a group rather than Zoom, hmm. which is interesting, but it's people are really tuned into verbal cues if the phone is down and they're not writing other things. I mean, the main problem with the phone is a lot of times people will, you know, start doing other work when they're on the phone because no one's watching them. Yeah. But so that's why when you're listening, I meditate. So I try to be very mindful when I'm listening. And I try to be very aware of my feet and fingers, my toes and fingers. When I'm meditating, my toes and fingers will sometimes tingle. Mm. And so I will really tune into like being present in my body. I will often say to myself, before the call, be where your ears are. That's based on the old saying, be where your feet are, be where your ears are, and just really being present. And then also thinking like making it into a game. What do, what am I hearing in this, in this person's voice? What are my guesses as to how they're feeling? And the more that you do that, it becomes a habit.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. Okay. Well, now let's talk about presentation.
1: So presentation is all of, you know, body language, tone of voice, facial expression. There's lots of things to talk about there. One of the main things that I would talk about is that the use of hands. So, and I'll tell you a story from the courtroom. This is a great way to talk about this. My doctors are often very nervous before they testify. You know, they're very confident, competent, fabulous doctors, but this is a different they're fish out of water in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. And so normally, Pete, what I try to do is right before they go on the stand, if we're at lunch break or if it's the beginning of the day, I'll try to be like, you know, what TV show are you watching or what book are you reading, trying to sort of divert their attention from what they're about to do. Mm-hmm. So this particular doctor was going out to the stand after a lunch break and I tried to Sort of distract him. But I had just read in this book, Captivate, which is by a woman named Vanessa Van Edwards, that she had studied TED Talks and she had compared the most watched TED Talks and the least watched TED Talks. And the major difference between the two was in the most watched TED Talks, the speaker used hand motions and gestured with their hands many, many, many more times than the least watched TED Talks. I was captivated by this, just like the book said. And I made the mistake of telling my doctor about this study <laughs> right, right before he went up to testify. He went up to testify and he proceeded to conduct an orchestra from the witness stand. He knocked over the microphone twice. <laughs> I was like, if the jury was looking at my body language, they would have seen like grimace on my face and tight muscles and shoulders as earrings. But the jury loved him. Now, it wasn't just because he moved his hands a lot. But when you see my hands and for the listeners, if we, if you're still in zoom world, you know, the world is starting to wake up, but some of us are still in zoom world, or if you're in person, if you can find a way to naturally use your hands and especially on zoom so that your hands occasionally get into the screen, mm-hmm. it makes the other person feel at ease. Because when I can't see your hands, Pete, I don't know if you're holding a weapon. I could be. And so you are a threat to me. You <laughs> You could
0: be. I got a sword down here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I also don't know how far away you are. Yeah. You know, you could be close enough to hurt me. And I don't I, I can't sense you because our proprioception's not on in a computer. And even in real life, if you don't see my hands. So there's a great study that's it's in Joe DeNaro's book, which is um, what every body is saying. And he talks about the use of hands and says that if criminal defendants have their hands on counsel table rather than under counsel table. For the majority of the trial, they're more likely to be found not guilty. Yeah. So there's something about our brains that wants to see hands. And that's just one of many little tips that you can use to help yourself be a more effective advocate.
0: Beautiful. And let's talk about negotiation and agreement now.
1: Yeah, so negotiation. I mean, there's so many great books about negotiation, and I don't want to take anything away from those. I do think that, We need to, both with ourselves in our inner jury and our outer jury, be aware of our non-negotiables. Like we talked a little bit about hitting the snooze button when we wake up in the morning. If you make getting up at 5 a.m., which is what I do, a non-negotiable, You no longer sit in bed and say, oh, should I get up? Should I wait? Should I maybe five more minutes? It's not a negotiation. You just do it. I think that that's why, you know, Mel Robbins is famous for her five second rule. She's a speaker and an author who says that and she's done enormously well. But she had she talked about this five second rule where she goes five, four, three, two, one, and she does the thing. And I think that the value in that is you don't give yourself time to negotiate with yourself. So having non-negotiables and having non-negotiables with someone else too, you know, having your boundaries, but then with others, making sure you also have negotiables. You know, if you're going for a job and you want a certain salary, think of other things that would make you just as happy as that salary. So maybe you're willing to take 10K less if you can work from home two days a week, or you can take more PTO or you can get a daycare center that is partly paid for. I mean, there's a million things that you can start to think about. How else, what's negotiable for me? What else would I take? And that makes it a lot easier to negotiate and ultimately get what you want.
0: Yeah, right on. Okay, and argument.
1: So argument is the last resort of the advocate, and hopefully you never have to get there because the thing about argument is it's only really effective if a third party is deciding. Yeah. So if I'm arguing with opposing counsel and the judge decides the motion, then arguing makes sense. And if you're sort of fighting with a competitor for a raise or an opportunity, then arguing makes sense. But if you're trying to convince the person you're arguing with, it rarely works. All of the other tools that we've talked about, questions, evidence, perspective, words, credibility, those are the tools that are going to help you to persuade someone to share your perspective, to come along to your perspective. When it comes to argument, you just want to be very careful that you don't win the argument and lose the relationship.
0: Thank you. Well, Heather, thank. that's quite the rundown. Much appreciated. Tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things.
1: No, I, I mean, I think I've gone through it pretty well. You've tested me. It's great because, you know, you write the book and then there's like a period of time that you're sort of not paying as much attention to it. So to go through those 10 tools has been a fabulous opportunity for me to talk about them. And I'm glad you gave me the time.
0: Oh, thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
1: So I, I've already mentioned it, but it's something that really works for me. And that is to be where your feet are. I really think that so many times our heads are off in the clouds or we're looking at our phones, not present with the person in front of us, not present with the task in front of us. And when I remind myself to be where my feet are, it really helps me to be present, be focused and be productive.
0: All right. And could you share a favorite experiment or study or piece of research?
1: My favorite study is one that I talk about a lot in my keynotes and I've written about and I read about it in Daniel Pink's book, To Sell as Human, which is a fabulous book. I highly recommend it. It is a study that you ask the people and and we can do this now, Pete. You want to ask the people to snap five times with their dominant hand, Mm -hmm. looking at the person in front of them, and then draw a capital E with their index finger on their forehead.
0: On my own forehead or your forehead?
1: On your forehead.
0: Okay. Drawing.
1: See, that is phenomenal. So Pete drew the E facing me Oh. so that I could read the E. Oh,
0: not my sweetheart?
1: <laughs> yes, you really are. You could have drawn the E facing yourself, Pete. I often do say the people who drew the E facing the person in front of them are very empathetic and very good at perspective taking and the other people are selfish jerks, but that's not really true. I mean, we all have times that we are more focused on ourselves and what we're thinking, but when you can do what you just did and see things through the other person's perspective, it's going to make you a better advocate. I know Daniel Pink says, make you a better salesperson. The research is really based on whether it's going to make you more empathetic. Mm -hmm. But the point is that that little exercise I use in a lot of my keynotes and it's interactive and it's fun and it really shows how often we are in our own heads. Well,
0: yeah. And it's intriguing because I I think it's, well, I guess we'd have to run the the experiment again a few times, but yeah, I have a feeling like if you were boring me, (laughs) (laughs) And I were thinking about dinner that uh, my thoughtless means of doing this could very well just go my way just because I'm not fixated on your face.
1: I think you're 100% right. I am. I was going to see Daniel Pink speak and I stopped at a bar before because I was early and there were two bartenders working and one was starting his shift and one was leaving his shift. And I told them about the study and I asked them, you know, snap five times, draw the E. The one who was coming on to his shift drew the E facing me yeah, because, of course, he had to be focused on me and his customers. The one who was going home drew it facing himself because he was going to focus on his dog and his laundry. Yeah. So you're 100% right about that. Mm.
0: Oh, thank you. And a favorite book?
1: I would say that right now, the book that has been most impactful for me is Chatter by Ethan Cross. It is about the chatter in our brains. And it really resonated with me because it's a lot about what's in my book about the inner jury. So that's probably my current favorite. To Sell as Human is also a favorite. And I really love The Law of Divine Compensation by Marianne Williamson. It's more of a spiritual book, but it's really about the abundance of the world and how if you can see things that way, it often becomes that way.
0: And how about a favorite tool, something you used to be awesome at your job?
1: Calendly is really helpful for my calendar. I definitely love that one. I'm trying to, I just switched from... I won't say what I switched from, but I switched to Asana, and that's a um, project management tool that we, my team really loves and I'm trying to get used to it. I use a blue Yeti microphone for podcasting and I love that. So those are probably some of my tops.
0: And a favorite habit?
1: Meditation. Mm -hmm. It's the other day I posted, I had meditated not in a row, but I had meditated per insight timer, 1,111 times, and it's definitely changed me. You know, it makes me more present. It allows for that space between stimulus and response.
0: Okay. Is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They quote it back to you often.
1: The one that resonates the most and that I hear about the most, and I get emails and letters about the most is Judge Aquilina's tell me what you want me to know. Mm-hmm. And also, as a reminder, you can use that question with your inner jury as well.
0: Yeah. Thank you. And folks want to learn more, get in touch. Where would you point them?
1: Okay. So the best place to reach me is my website. It is advocate to win.com. And if you go there, you will see my podcast. You will see my books. You will see some videos and you can contact me through there. The other thing I would add is my Instagram. I post really regularly. And a lot of it is the tips that I share in the book and, and in my keynotes. And my Instagram is at I am Heather Hansen with an E-N. So at I'm Heather Hansen.
0: And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs?
1: Yeah, I think that my call to action would be to recognize that you are your own best advocate. You know, I think that we often look out, especially women, we want someone else to do it for us. Like if someone else would just get me that raise, ask for that raise, get me that thing, get me that opportunity. And that seems like it would be nice, but no one can do it better than you can. No one knows your needs, your passions, your competencies, your skills. No one knows your heart better than you do. So have confidence in that, that no one can do it better than you can. And then use these tools and get advocating.
0: All right, Heather, thank you. This has been a treat. I wish you much luck in all the ways you're advocating.
1: Thank you so much, Pete. It's such a pleasure to be here with you.
0: I love hearing a great question that I can use again and again. That's a versatile and helpful in conversation. And I really loved Heather's perspective there. Tell me what you want me to know. So good. So much better than what's your problem? What's the deal here? So what's up? It's like, yeah, you have permission. You have my ear and I want to know what you want me to know great stuff from Heather. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP672. Hope to catch you next time and peace.
1: Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com you can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full-text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency-covered.